You're listening to TIP. An orderly de-dollarization is nothing more than a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. And if you look at history, every time you have moved from one global reserve currency system to another reserve currency or to another system whatsoever, a gold-backed system, a Bitcoin-backed system, any other system, any of these transitions has been quite rough and it has involved almost always proper geopolitical conflicts. On today's episode, I chat with Alfonso Picatiello, who is the founder and CEO of the Macro Compass, which provides financial education, macro insights, and investment ideas. Alfonso is a macro expert, and in this episode, I bring him on to discuss his current outlook for markets, particularly what is driving the recent rally we've been seeing, whether he thinks it's sustainable or not. And Alfonso breaks down his bold prediction that the Fed will cut rates to 0% by 2024, rather than the 3% the market is currently expecting. We then get into the big topic for the day, which is on the long-term debt cycle. As Ray Dalio has said, understanding how this cycle works is crucial to understanding the economy and what might happen in the future. He also talks about why he believes the recent buzz about de-dollarization and the US dollar losing its reserve status in the world is nothing more than a fairy tale at this point as well as he leaves us with some actionable portfolio strategies and investment takeaways given this outlook. All right, without further delay, let's get right into today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, and on today's episode, I have with me Alfonso Picatiello. Welcome back, Alfonso. Hey, Rebecca. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining me again today. We have a ton I want to get through with you, and I think a good place I want to start is with your short-term outlook on markets, how you're making sense of markets right now, and particularly the recent rally, because it seems like it's been rallying in midst of these deteriorating economic conditions. So I was hoping you could give us a sense on what you're seeing and what you're expecting going forward for the year. So there was a pretty famous saying in markets that said that the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And I think that's been the problem for bears so far, or at least over the last three to six months. The market has basically traded in a sideway range on the S&P 500 between 3,800 and 4,200. We're basically going nowhere for six months. Recently, we have rallied from, let's say, the lows of uh, late last year. And the reason behind that is not that the economy is doing any better, but really the reason is that we have started what's supposed to be a disinflationary trend. And investors have this muscle memory over the last 10 years to try and anticipate any Fed pivot. You front load a Federal Reserve pivot, you make money. Because anytime they accommodate, the stock market rips up. So you want to be there before the Fed does that. You want to try and anticipate this Fed pivot to benefit from uh, the stock market rallying on a Fed pivot. That's exactly what people are trying to do right now. They're trying to anticipate to front load the Fed pivot. Now, the reality is that on the ground, the situation is a bit different. 
because the Federal Reserve this time will be forced to wait quite a long time until they can actually pivot because of their mandate. They want to get inflation down to 2%. It's going to take a while, maybe another six to nine months at least. And the process of getting us there, Rebecca, involves pretty much a recession. So this time, I guess, investors need to ask themselves, why am I getting a Fed pivot? Between 2010 and 2020, you were getting a Fed pivot because the Fed wanted to support markets. It wanted to make sure that, you know, people were feeling wealthier, they were spending more, they were stimulating growth and finally getting inflation to 2%. That's why the Fed pivoted between 2010 and 2020. This time, if they do pivot, it's because they've managed to get the economy bad enough to bring inflation down to 2%. There is nothing to be happy about front-loading that pivot, if you ask me. It sounds like it. And I do recall you had a post, I want to say very early this year, maybe very late in 2022, where you had a projection of where the S&P 500 would be. And really the post just broke down the earnings multiple and earnings EPS. It had to come down by about 20 to 30 percent. And you landed in a range of estimate between 3,300 and 3,500 for the S&P 500. Now, I know these change all the time. I am just curious to know if this has if you've updated this at all or if this is still your expectation by Q4. Look, very recently on the Macro Compass, which is the investment strategy firm that I run, I sent to clients an update of that table. So basically, it's a simple table that looks at the earnings per share estimates and the valuations you're paying for these earnings per share, right? So according to my macro models, the earnings per share a year from now in the S&P 500 are likely to be 10 to 20% lower than today. Analysts expect earnings to be flat, to just, you know, hover there and not drop. So I already expect earnings to contract, which is a much more bearish call than the average analyst out there. On top of it, I look at the valuations that people will be willing to pay for these earnings. And honestly, today, equities are trading at 19 times forward earnings. So 19 times means that if you invert the PE and you make it the yield basically in earnings on the future cash flows you will be making by buying the stocks, the earnings yield is around 5%. What really surprises me is the risk-free rate is almost at 5%, Rebecca. So you can, if you're looking to generate a 5% earnings yield return, you can just take your money and park it in a T-bill in the United States, three to six months maturity, you're going to be getting 4.5% there. The reason I'm saying that is that risk premia today are pretty low. I mean, you can generate the same return by keeping your money in a relatively safe, risk-free, short-term T-bill. So the valuations that people are willing to pay today to get these earnings in the future are, in my opinion, relatively high. Sum that up that I expect earnings to be weaker than analysts expect. And I think the S&P should retest its 2022 lows. That's the path of least resistance. We are talking 3,600. There is a chance it could go lower. Yes, there is. And I think the path to clear first is that we go and retest these lows later this year. And you did write in one of your recent reports that most of the rally from late 2022 has been completely driven by multiple expansions. Why have these multiples been expanding then when the market knows what's happening in the economy, things are expected to get worse? What is driving that higher price in valuations? And then I guess you kind of touched on this, but what does that have for the future implications for earnings valuations then? Look, it's really a muscle memory of markets wanting to pay up to front load the Fed pivot. The disinflationary trend has started 
So inflation is still high, but it is at least trending down. And people are happy to pay up, so to pay a higher valuation to buy the stock market because they think the Fed is going to ease. As the Fed is going to ease, risk-free rates become lower. So you can't make any more 4 or 5% on your T-bills. You can make maybe 2 or 3% at that point. So investors are happy to overpay right now to try and front load the Fed pivot, which will compress risk-free rates and make this earnings yield and this PE more attractive. So they want to get ahead of the crew and they want to front load that. Honestly, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. First, because you are expecting that basically we get an immaculate disinflation. You get this disinflationary trend to continue. You get no recession. So earnings stay basically where they are today. And that will allow the Fed to slowly but surely reduce their tightening in, in markets. Well, this is a very controlled and nice and smooth ride. But honestly, doesn't seem very feasible to me. The amount of stimulus we have thrown to the economy in 2021 and 2022 is now showing up in strong inflationary pressures. We have also reduced the accommodation really rapidly. The last fiscal stimulus from the United States government was in April 2021. It's been two years ago since the US government has gone with a large fiscal stimulus. So we are removing fiscal accommodation. We are removing monetary accommodation for sure. We start seeing some cracks in the banking sector, in the housing market. How can you expect that such a rapid withdrawal of stimulus can lead to such a linearly predictable disinflationary path ahead? I honestly, it doesn't make sense to me. And then I guess just on the market's expectations in regards to the Fed. So you've written that you expect that we're going to you expect the Fed to cut rates to zero percent again in 2024, while the market is pricing in and expecting around three percent, I think, for them to land. So can you walk us through why your expectation is so much different from the markets? Is it tying into that deflationary narrative? Yes, it is. Look, Rebecca. I find it very funny that people say the amount of stimulus we threw at the economy was exaggerated and the Fed was accommodative for too long. And therefore, we got this large inflationary and nominal growth expansion in 2022 and the first half of 2022. It was really rapid. And so then the Fed had to bring rates all the way up to 5%. Okay, fine. But now let's look at the other side of the coin. We have also removed accommodation super aggressively, both fiscal and monetary. We are now slowing down the pace of growth really rapidly. The US economy is growing below trend, roughly about 1% annualized growth from the 3-4% levels of 2022, basically. So we are trending down rapidly and the pace can't be linear on the way down if it was exponential on the way up. I mean, people are refusing to see that as we accommodated super aggressively in 2020 and 2021, we got the markets and economy reflecting that in late 21, beginning of 22, with market euphoria, with animal spirits running loose. But we also withdrew economic stimulus, monetary fiscal stimulus very rapidly. So you should expect the same to happen on the way down. So that is why I think as the Fed has raised interest rates really rapidly to 5%, there will be something systemic breaking. And the banking crisis we saw is not anything systemic yet. That's a liquidity crisis isolated in some banks that have run poor risk management, to be honest. So people thought that was the systemic risk event, but I don't think that was the case. Where I expect it to happen is somewhere in credit space. So that can be the housing market, that can be commercial real estate, that can be any other largely leveraged markets that we have created as a byproduct of 0% interest rates. 
Now that interest rates are 5%, those over-leveraged systems clearly will come under stress. And I think the housing market is already showing some evident signs of stress. Take KKR or take Blackstone. Their largest real estate investment trusts are avoiding investors from taking money out. Rebecca, as we speak, if you invested in these real estate investment trusts, you cannot get your money out. They are gating redemptions. That's the formal way to say it. So they don't want redemptions because if they get a lot of redemptions, they have to liquidate their assets. Assets are houses, offices, stores that don't have marginal buyers because mortgage rates are so high. So you see this fragile equilibrium in the housing market is already there. If you get a credit stress somewhere, the Federal Reserve can't do anything about that. On a liquidity event, the Federal Reserve can backstop the value of the collateral. They can say, hey, treasury bonds are the problem? Well, just give them to me, okay? I'll, I'll ignore the market value. You can give me the treasury bonds at 100 cents. I'll give you the funding. They can't do that with offices prices, with stores, with houses. If the value of that collateral goes down, that's a credit crisis. The Federal Reserve can't do anything about that. I think we're getting closer to that point. And when you get this credit stress, interest rates go back not to two, not to three, not to 4%. They have to go back to zero to make sure the system can somehow restart again. So then do you think that today is playing out as every other typical recessionary period or downturn has happened? Or is there something different about this time? Well, it's a good question because not all recessions are the same. And I think so far, first of all, we are not in one yet. I expect we get into one over the next two to three months. We have a very weak uh, growth as we speak. We have basically the last stage of inflationary pressures. They're receding. That makes nominal growth still positive as we speak, but trending down. I think we will get into a proper recession later on. How is this path towards a recession looking? Well, this time it's quite different than usual. I mean, you have had a lot of distortions coming from the pandemic that are very hard to solve. Take this, for example. Very late in the cycle, you have leisure and hospitality as a sector that is hiring as one of the most aggressive sectors in the economy. You normally don't have that when growth is slowing down, right? You have, at best the acyclical components like healthcare or government or education, those are the sectors hiring the most, not leisure and hospitality. Why? These sectors are still today trying to catch up with the reopening, right? I mean, they had to down stuff materially during the pandemic and now they're trying to catch up. This is just one of the many distortions out there. The other one, which I find very interesting, is that the real estate market is frozen. Basically, housing sales are down 30, 40% year on year. The housing market is really calm. It's difficult to make transactions when buyers are priced out because mortgage rates are too high and sellers are saying, well, then I'm not going to sell, right? Then I'm just going to wait. So transactions are drying up. And when that happens, Rebecca, historically, hiring trends in the construction area and anything ancillary to the housing market really tend to come down. Why would you ha have a hundred new brokers if there are no transactions happening, right? Have a look instead at construction employment. It's still growing. This is really strange. And I think it is also because during the pandemic, many of these sectors got quite scared by scarcity. You could not hire properly skilled people during the pandemic. There was such a labor shortage as we had stimulated too much and we were reopening at once. So there are some labor hoarding mechanisms going around, I think. There is some residual from the pandemic that makes this cycle quite different than usual. Overall, though, Rebecca, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Again, if you tighten conditions this aggressively and you keep them tight for so long, you're just literally waiting for an accident to happen. And I think we'll get one relatively soon. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Okay. And now I want to move on to the longer term cycle because you've talked about this in your macro education series a ton and Ray Dalio popularized the term the long term debt cycle. And so I really want to get into this with you today because he has called this extremely important to understanding how the economy works. And so I was hoping you could start off by explaining what the long term debt cycle is, how it works, and perhaps the key factors that drive this cycle. Really happy to see that you read my macro education series. It's free for everybody. It's on the macro compass if they want to go and check it out. So 
the, the long-term debt cycle is really something important. And to explain that, we need to take a step back and go back to the 70s. Structural economic growth is really the, basically the result of how many people are actually contributing to growth and how productive are these people and how productive is the capital that goes through the economy. So it's productivity and demographics. Those are the two main drivers of structural long-term growth. Why did I say the 70s? Is because in that period, both of them were pretty good. I mean, after the Second World War, we had quite a demographic boom. It takes, correct me if I'm wrong, but about 20 years to make a 20 years old. So in the 70s, a lot of 20 years old were joining the labor force. We had quite a lot of strong labor force growth in the 70s. First component for creating good economic growth, structural economic growth. On top of it, productivity was doing good in these years. We were industrializing economies. We were introducing robotization, the very early stages of that. And when you do that, you increase your productivity marginally by a lot because the first productivity enhancements are the best ones from a marginal perspective, right? So effectively, productivity growth and labor force growth were both very positive. That meant the US economy could grow at almost 4% real GDP growth a year without any financial engineering of any sort, Rebecca, just structurally. That was pretty good because you didn't need to lever up. I mean, go have a look at that to GDP in many places back then. It was very low. Why? Well, you didn't need it, right? Why would you lever up if you can just grow organically? Now, let's move a bit forward, shall we? And let's go to the 90s. And at that moment, you had both demographics and productivity peaking. So what happened is that most of your productivity announcement, the first moves in productivity announcement um, practices were already there and had already penetrated quite some sectors of the economy. So we keep becoming more productive year after year. We do. Technology has helped us even becoming a bit more productive than before, but the marginal growth in productivity trended down. So productivity went down to the one, one and a half percent area. Not too bad. The real drag was population growth. The real drag was labor force growth. Population was aging and birth rate had basically collapsed already between the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. That meant that the labor force growth was much slower than before. Structural economic growth has moved down from 4% to maybe 2 two and a half. Politicians started thinking, well, I want to grow more. So how do I do that? Well, leverage is the answer. If you can't afford a house in cash, what do you do? You go to a bank and you ask for credit. You tell the bank, hey, I have a fixed income. I um, will make money for the next 30 years through my salary. Can you please use those future cash flows and give me a bunch of money today against these future cash flows? You borrow from your future ability to generate earnings and cash flows, right? That's what the total economy did overall. So if you look at the public sector and the private sector debt to GDP from the 90s to 2020, all economies in the world, be it by public debt or private sector debt or a combination of the two, levered up incredibly aggressively. The US total debt to GDP was about 200% in the late 90s, went all the way up to 300% in 2020. I can take any other country, and again, it might be public debt, like Japan used public debt a lot. China used private debt a lot, for example. But all of us went in the same direction. Let me pause here for a second. Yeah, I guess I was going to ask you, is this 
In terms of where we are in the long-term debt cycle, has it been quite similar for other countries, other major countries? Are they all in this similar stage or is it mostly just the U.S.? If I look at all developed market economies, which basically are to be defined as economies with an aging population and with uh, productivity trends that had already exhausted basically by the 90s, all these developed markets, so all European countries, Japan, the UK, Australia, Canada, the US, all of these countries are effectively in the same boat, Rebecca. They had structural growth slowing down. They used debt to prop up their cyclical growth. They levered up their economies to try and generate some growth. Countries like Canada have done it really aggressively so with private debt. Private debt as percentage of GDP in Canada is over 200%. I mean, those are seriously big numbers. Also because we as households or corporates, we cannot print money. The more we are indebted, the more we need our salaries to grow to keep servicing this debt. The government instead issues the money. I mean, the government is the very entity that issues the money. So how did they refinance their debt is by issuing more debt, right? And the stories for the private sector is much more complicated. Go tell your bank if you lose your job that you want another mortgage or you want to refinance your mortgage based on the fact that you're going to print money. You can't print money. You need proper cash flows. Private debt is more fragile than public debt in the first place. Some countries have chosen to lever up their private system rather than their government, but everybody has gone there. The only countries which haven't levered up aggressively yet are emerging market countries that still have quite some strong population growth and still quite some productivity because they're a bit behind in the growth cycle, right? That makes a lot of sense. And I guess you have written that you think we're in the very late stages, or I think you said the last innings of this long-term debt cycle. So maybe walk us through what that means and what are the implications economically and for financial markets? Yeah, great question. So recap, structural growth goes down, economies lever up, they add debt, either public or private debt, to make sure they can generate some cyclical growth to offset the declining structural growth. What is the trick? How can you lever up an economy from 100% debt to GDP to 300% debt to GDP and still make it sustainable? Well, you lower borrowing costs. What mortgage can you afford if you make the same amount of money? Let's say you make 100,000 a year, you can afford a mortgage for 500,000 euro or dollars if mortgage rates are, I don't know, 2% bring mortgage rates to zero, and all of a sudden you can afford more, don't you? With the same amount of salary, with the same amount, with the same ability to generate cash flows, the mere fact that borrowing costs are lower make you so that you can afford more leverage. So we basically lowered interest rates from the 80s to 2020 relentlessly. Real interest rates came down all over the world decade after decade after decade. Why? To make sure that the next borrower could borrow even more than the previous one, and therefore this debt cycle could continue and we could create some sort of cyclical growth that would offset structural growth that was declining. There is a game stopper there though. And when you cannot lower real interest rates further, when you reach points where basically borrowing rates are as low as they can be, it becomes tricky to engineer this process because the next guy, the next marginal borrower, can't borrow more unless interest rates are lower. Can he? That's what Japan found out in the late 90s. 
the real estate bubble in Japan had basically led through the same process of being able to lever up at lower and lower interest rates had led to a real estate bubble in Japan. When the bubble burst, Japan tried exactly this mechanism and they said, well, you know, guys, uh, I'll give you interest rates that are as low as they can be. Go and lever up. And the private sector was like, no, the rates are already 0%. You can't make them lower. I don't have a higher capacity to generate structural cash flows. I'm not going to borrow more. So basically, Japan has been stagnating effectively for the last 20 years because they reached the point where you cannot lower real interest rates anymore. And the private sector is not willing to lever up more. So where do we stand in the long-term cycle is if I look at where real interest rates were before the pandemic, well, in the US they were negative, in Europe they were more negative, in the UK they were even more negative than that. So basically you were flirting with the boundaries of how low borrowing rates can be. And if you can't push it any lower, you can't run the system for a lot more. The risk is that you keep stretching the system until, like in Japan in the 90s, you end up creating too much leverage and at some point the bubble bursts. So either via bursting the credit bubble or via effectively not being able to lower interest rates further, you reach the latest stages of the debt cycle. I think we went really close to that before the pandemic. And now the problem is as interest rates are much higher than before, people are staying away from levering up. Mortgage applications are down. So what you're doing is you're freezing credit in all these sectors and you're risking that there's going to be some deleveraging. Okay, that was going to be my next question for you. Do you think that we could see a period of deleveraging as happened in 2008 and 1929 in the US as that is typically the last stage of this long-term debt cycle or do you think that we're not going to get there this time? think policymakers will fight this as hard as they can, Rebecca, because leveraging a fiat system is the way you grow a fiat system if you don't have the structural capacity to grow it through demographics and productivity. If you don't have that, then you need to lever up the system. That's the only way to grow it at socially acceptable, politically acceptable growth rates. So policymakers are not going to volunteer to deleverage the system. Why? They're not going to be re-elected. Nobody's going to be re-elected if under his or her watch you're deleveraging the system. Deleveraging means basically you're doing the inverse process of what we did over the last 40 years. Now try to think at what happened to asset prices over the last 40 years. The stock market went up about 10% a year. House prices, same thing. So everybody felt richer. It's the wealth effect that you can generate through this process. Now try to undo that and tell me which politicians is going to volunteer for it. The issue is that in Japan, also policymakers in the 90s didn't want this massive deleveraging. But when it starts and it starts hitting consumers, it is very, very hard to stop and especially very hard to ask the private system to re-leverage after the deleveraging, which is what happened in Japan. People got burned. They don't want to accumulate more debt. I think policymakers are not going to volunteer for it, Rebecca, but the chances that it happens are not negligible. And then I think largely markets and everyone is expecting a recession, but how does a recessionary scenario differ from a period of deleveraging? 
Well, it's a good question. Sometimes they coincide. So during the great financial crisis, you had the recession and you had the deleveraging. I mean, the housing market was deleveraging really aggressively during uh, the great financial crisis. People were forced basically to liquidate their houses to, and foreclosures went up, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a deleveraging of the housing market. Sometimes though, you have a recession without any meaningful deleveraging. So that happens when basically the recession hits particularly the labor market, industrial profits, rather than creating some credit stress somewhere. So the key is, how does this recession play out? Does it hit a very leveraged sector? Does it hit the credit market like it did with the housing market in 2008? If it hits directly one of these very leveraged credit sectors, then deleveraging is the obvious thing that happens next. If instead it's a domestically driven, consumption driven recession where the labor market weakens, where people spend less, but not necessarily the household sector in the US is the most indebted out there. It's not necessarily so. So it could be that it is just a more orderly consumption labor market driven recession. In that case, you don't have necessarily a deleveraging episode as well. So recessions can take different paths at the end of the day. And it's not a guarantee that you always get a deleveraging with one. When I was reading on Ray Dalio's long-term debt cycle, I believe I read that he said a period of deleveraging can occur when interest rate tools are no longer an option. But since central banks do have the option now, at least in the US, they are high enough to go down, as you mentioned, even to the lower zero bound. Is that a way that we could potentially avoid this episode then? Yes, in principle, that could be the case. Although the reasons why the private sector levers up is not only that interest rates are very low, but also that there is a stable economic environment around and they did, especially they haven't suffered a deleveraging episode first. So to make an example, in Japan in the 90s, the Bank of Japan cut interest rates from basically 5% all the way to zero and it kept interest rates there, Rebecca, forever, ever since. The Japanese private sector has refused to lever up, even if interest rates dropped so aggressively. Why? Because the deleveraging of the 90s was so painful for them that there was no interest rate cheap enough that could convince them to take on additional debt. So it is the process here that matters. If the US can get inflation down to 2%, maybe with a recession, but without a massive deleveraging episode first, then yes, lowering interest rates at 0% will prevent this late cycle deleveraging episode happening at all because people will suffer but they will not be burned by a deleveraging episode first so if you lower interest rates you can encourage them to lever up again later in the cycle but if the us can't get this orderly move down and you get a deleveraging episode first when people get burned directly then you cut interest rates at zero percent it won't do much at least for a couple of years before you can convince people then getting that back on their balance sheet is something they can afford. So it's the sequence that matters, really. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day -day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff, 
or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Okay, that was a very helpful explanation. I do want to move on to de-dollarization now because I still have a lot I want to get through with you. I think this is such an interesting topic. We've been seeing a lot of this being talked about lately. There's been talks between China reaching a deal with Brazil to trade their domestic currencies and closing LNG deals in Yuan. And there's talks of the BRICS countries wanting to trade oil in gold instead of USD. And so I'm just wondering a lot of these events have led some to believe is the US dollar world over and if so what are the potential alternatives that could take this over yeah that's something i covered as well in the macro education series i think it's a super important topic 
Before we answer this question, I think we need to try and explain a bit how the system works. It is a bit overlooked, I think. People take it for granted, but it's, it's something I would like to refresh for a second for our listeners. So what we have basically created is a system where if you are a country outside the US and want to transact with anyone else and you want to maybe sell your goods or services or commodities, whatever you want to sell with another player in the world, you can do that in a streamlined system where we, you use one denominator of your transactions. Everybody uses the same. Basically, about 70 to 80% of global payments, trade invoices, settlements are done in the same currency. That currency is the US dollar. That facilitates quite a lot of things. I mean, counters can transact against each other. They don't, need, they don't need to worry about domestic currency. They don't need to worry about settlement. It's all standardized in one currency. Okay, that's how the system works. Now, let's make an example to understand that being the dollar is actually quite a privilege, but it's not easy at all either. And that will be the first step to answer your question. What is the alternative, basically? What's the next system going to look like? Let's say I'm a Brazilian corporate and I sell soybeans or any other commodity that is very popular in Brazil. When I sell soybeans to China, the trade will today happen in dollars. So I'm Brazil. I have these hard-earned dollars now on my balance sheet because I sold my commodities that I can create as added value and China has bought them. So I have dollars. Okay, so what do I do with these dollars? Those dollars will sit on the asset side of a corporate in Brazil, right? They have sold soybeans and now have dollars. These dollars will enter the banking system because the corporate will deposit these dollars to a Brazilian bank, right? That's the only way you can keep your money in our fiat system. You deposit it at a bank. That means that dollars have entered the Brazilian banking system. They need to be invested or kept safe somewhere, right? So the way we do that today is via investing in treasuries. All these foreign players in the world that sell any goods or any services in dollars will get these dollars in and they will recycle them, keeping them safe in US treasuries. In order to find a market that welcomes this gigantic amount of money circulating in the world and coming from global trades and global transactions, you need a huge, deep market out there. It needs to be liquid, it needs to be transactable, it needs to be deep, it needs to have a repo market underlying. That's a lot of ifs. And it is not very easy to find one because it also needs to be relatively risk-free. You just need to have a parking, a liquid parking place for your dollars. The treasury market is pretty good at that, I have to say. The thing to consider here is that the, the US needs to supply the world with an additional amount of these treasuries every year to guarantee that the new dollars generated from trades, trade growth goes up every year in the world. We grow, we trade more with each other, which means there will be more dollars that are looking for a home at the end of the process, which means you need to expand this supply of dollars. You need to expand the supply of an item where people can recycle the dollars. You need to issue treasuries. You need to give people the ability to have a deep and expanding treasury market. And the US does that via basically running permanent deficits. Running fiscal deficits is a feature if you want to be the global reserve currency in the world. And it is not easy to be the dollar. You need to have a deep liquid repo market, treasury market that you want to expand every year. And now answering the first part of your question, what are the alternatives? Today, the currency that takes the most share after the dollar is the euro. 
And that's the most likely candidate because together with the deep and liquid repo market and treasury market, you need to have the rule of law. People don't want to allocate their hard-earned dollars from transactions into a country the treasury market of a country like it could be russia or china where it is debatable whether you will ever be able to get your money back because of lack of rule of law or capital controls so you don't want that right you want a democracy you want the rule of law you want the liquid market the euro might have something like that but it doesn't have a deep enough bond market highly rated AAA government bonds in europe as percentage of gdp are a fraction of treasury bonds in the us as percentage of gdp so even Europe doesn't qualify for that role. It is hard to be the dollar. It's a great privilege, but it isn't easy either because you need to fulfill a lot of roles. And as per today, there are not many valid alternatives. Actually, there is no valid alternative. Okay. And then just quickly tying this back to the discussion on deleveraging in a global credit system that is so tied to the US dollars and leverage to US dollars, in the event of an economic downturn and deleveraging scenario, what would the impacts be on the US dollar and this US-based system? And perhaps does this tie into why it's so hard for countries to switch? Yeah, so right. Because the other side of the coin we need to look at is that because the system that we have created not only needs an asset where to recycle these dollars, but because it is dollar-based, a lot of countries that are sitting outside the US have chosen to lever up in dollars. So they issue dollar-denominated debt, Rebecca, to fund their businesses. I mean, think you're a Brazilian corporate, you sell soybeans. If you want to lever up your business, you have to issue bonds or debt to borrow money, you will be forced to borrow money in dollars because you sell your commodities in dollars in the first place. So you issue dollar-denominated bonds despite not having any organic access to the very dollars you need to service this debt unless for trade growth. If trade is going fine, if you're selling more soybeans, if more dollars are coming in, you're good. You can have dollar debt because dollars are coming in. So you can pay your coupons, you can service your debt freely. We have issued 12 trillion dollars of dollar denominated debt from entities that don't have access to the fed they don't have a liquidity access to these dollars when they need them the only way to get dollars is via trade growth that explains a lot of the link between deleveraging and dollar strength that you were referring to before so if trade growth is slowing down if brazil cannot get their hands on enough dollars because the world is slowing down and so there is a recession and they can't sell enough soybeans to china anymore they don't get a lot of dollars coming in right the flow fresh dollar slows down but you still need to service the other side of your balance sheet which is debt and you have dollar debt you need to service. But where are these dollars, Rebecca? I don't have, I don't see these dollars anymore. So the system is built so that if there is a deleveraging, people scramble to the dollars because they need them to pay their debt. So what happens is the dollar goes up. Everybody wants fresh cash dollars and they bid them up because they need them to pay back their debt. Paying back their debt means deleveraging. So when you deleverage a system that is so entrenched and based on the dollar, the dollar appreciates. And this is why if China and Brazil decide to trade against each other in another currency or any other block of countries would decide to do that, all of these countries have dollar-denominated debt on their balance sheet, all of them, because they're so ingrained in the system, they have issued dollar debt. 
China has issued dollar debt, Brazil has issued dollar debt. If they decide to trade against each other in one, then Brazil all of a sudden will have less dollars at hand, right? They're selling their commodities. Instead of getting dollars in, they're getting one, but their debt is still sitting there and it's denominated in dollars. So the reason why I'm saying that is if you walk away from this organic fresh flow of dollars that you need and want to have to service your liabilities, how are you going to get your dollars? How are you going to service your liabilities? The only way to get away from this system, the way we have built it, is a proper deleveraging episode. We say, let's default on the dollars. Let's forget about it. I don't want to repay my dollar debt. Okay? So you're basically defaulting on trillions and trillions and trillions of dollar debt out there. That is not an orderly event. You can choose to do that, Rebecca, but the reason why I chose to write that piece is that people talk to me of a de-dollarization, like if it can be an organized, orchestrated, fairly orderly event. It cannot be, by the way, the system is organized. Okay, that was extremely helpful to hear that explanation because my next question was going to be, is there a certain amount of global trade that would happen between countries saying we are switching our global trade, we're going to buy commodities and things in gold, yuan, Bitcoin, anything else? Would there be a certain nominal amount that would then cause implications for the dollar. But what you just mentioned is that they still have to service that liability side. So as long as that is there, it doesn't matter how much global trade they do in dollars, they'll still have to eventually convert those other foreign currencies or assets to dollars eventually. And that's why the system keeps going. Look, the thing is, Rebecca, they can choose to, they can decide to do that. But what will happen is that by doing that, either they choose to default on dollars, which means they will basically lose the trust of any other country in the world that still transacts in the dollar in the first place. So they can choose to do that, but it's a very tectonic shift. It's a hard decision for them, right? Them as in a block of country deciding to try and walk away. If they do default on dollar debt, you're defaulting on global obligations, which means who else is going to trust you, right? In this fiat debt-based system, nobody can trust you if you freely want to default on your global obligations. The other way to do that, it's the more painful way, which is to deleverage the system first in a relatively orderly fashion, which means you pay back all your debt, all your dollar debt. You have to pay it back. There is 12 trillion year after year. Instead of levering up further in dollars, if you're Brazil, you pay down your dollar debt. But that means that by paying down your dollar debt, you need quite a lot of dollars coming in year after year, and you will be trying to pay down this huge $12 trillion of debt out there. How many dollars do you need to pay down all this debt? So this system basically is quite interesting because one way or another, it needs to some non-orderly, non-linear events to morph into something else. An orderly de-dollarization is nothing more than a fairy tale. It doesn't exist. And if you look at history, every time you have moved from one global reserve currency system to another reserve currency or to another system whatsoever, a gold-backed system, a Bitcoin-backed system, any other system, any of these transitions has been quite rough and it has involved almost always proper geopolitical conflicts. An orderly de-dollarization doesn't exist. And if you get one, it's going to be quite a rough ride and most likely involving even some worse. That's what I want to come across with. Explain how the system works to, want to make people understand why you keep hearing about the de-dollarization, but it never happens. It is very, very difficult to engineer one and most likely it requires quite a rough path ahead. 
Okay. And I guess one way that we could monitor this going forward as investors is looking to the countries and seeing if their U.S. liability sides are in fact decreasing substantially over time rather than increasing as you would perhaps expect. Yes, that's a good thing to do. So look at the so-called euro dollar system. So how many dollar debt and liabilities are getting issued from entities sitting outside the US. There is a database that you can use to track that. And I also talked about it in the macro education series. So if people want to try and find the tools to follow this massive macro shift and see if it's really happening, there are public sources to do that. The other thing is, yeah, if Brazil starts issuing Remimbi denominated bonds, That is interesting, isn't it? Because that means that Brazil is not only choosing to transact with China in one, but also willing to lever up in renminbi in one. So it's not only doing the asset side, but also the liability side. So far, there has been basically no indication of that because you need Brazil to be willing to transact in one and then get this one back and invest them somewhere as well. So you need China then to open up their bond market. You see how many pieces need to happen together. And some of them also include political shifts that are massive opening up. So not having capital controls like China has, for example, lowering your amount of corruption in the political system like Brazil has to make sure that you can invite other countries to invest their foreign reserve assets in Brazil or in China. A lot needs to change to make sure that this can become a more credible threat to the dollar. And even if it does, there is still $12 trillion debt that we need to discuss about anyway. So there's a lot of ifs and there's a lot of data to follow, but all of that can be and should be followed in a holistic way. And that's really what I try to do on the macro compass. I know that it sounds fancy to scream that the dollar is going to zero, but what you need really is a grounded, level-headed approach to these complex macro topics where you can follow the data really and understand what's going on. That's what I try to do with the macro compass. And I absolutely love reading all of your articles on there. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go today is just what is a practical portfolio implication or strategy that investors can take away after listening to this episode here? Well, there's one, I think, which is more short term and one more long term. So short term, look, if I'm saying that I expect the Federal Reserve to be forced to cut rates to 0% in 2024, then the obvious assets that benefits from it is bonds, because bonds have an, bond prices have an inverse relationship to yields. So if yields go down all the way back to zero, if Fed funds go back to zero, then bond prices will benefit from it. So I think that it's something to consider in your portfolio right now to have a bit more bonds in it to protect your portfolio against this potential recession we see ahead. So this will be one of the potential practical short-term implications long-term. Look, I think the role of the dollar and gold, both of them in portfolios is relatively underestimated. If you have dollars in your portfolio, every time, Rebecca, you'll have one of these situations where the world is trying to deleverage, where we are trying to scramble to get dollars because, you know, there are all these dollar liabilities out there. Having an exposure to the dollar in your portfolio will benefit you from that. So it acts like a diversifier in periods when all the rest gets actually hit pretty bad, including the stock market. So having some dollars in your portfolio, even if you believe in a de-dollarization, might interestingly be something good to have. 
And I just explained why the dollar actually needs to basically appreciate in the system before you can bring it all the way down, right? By the way the system is created. Gold instead would work against the second layer of this process because once you transition away from the dollar, I discussed how hard it is to actually have one currency that replaces the dollar. It is basically impossible. Nobody fits all the requirements that the dollar has to be the global reserve currency. So I believe that gold will play a very, very important role, like it did last time that we tried to transition away from a fiat system, which means basically before the 70s. The reason why gold plays that role is that it already sits on the balance sheet of all these institutions. Brazil has gold, China has gold, Russia has gold, Saudi Arabia has gold. All governments in the world, even developed market economies, have quite a lot of gold on their balance sheets. Gold has already served this stabilizer role as basically the hard asset underpinning the global credit system. And I do think that investors might consider that it might play that role again in the future. Yes, we are a much more technological economy than we were in the 50s and in the 60s. That is true. But I still think that gold can take on that role, or at least investors might consider that it can leading to an appreciation of gold prices, which can be pretty rapid. I think it's a good hedge always to consider to have a relatively uh, decent allocation to gold in your portfolio to hedge against the second leg of the dollarization. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today, Alfonso. That was excellent as always. I never have enough time with you, but can you give a handoff to yourself and where our listeners can go to learn more about you and all of the work that you put out? Thanks, Rebecca. The best way to follow what I do is on themacrocompass.com. It's the website of my investment research and portfolio strategy firm. All I try to do really is basically what we discussed in this conversation. Macro can be pretty complicated, full of jargon, a lot of pieces to put together. The idea is I try to break them down in plain English, give people the data and the sources to go and do the work themselves too. It's basically one macro learning journey together where people also can get some actionable investment strategy on top of it to steer their portfolio according to which part of the macro cycle we are in. All of that is on the macrocompass.com. Of course, and I will make sure to link that in the show notes. Thank you so much again today, Alfonso. Thanks, Rebecca. Talk soon. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.